You're listening to a podcast from the BMJ. Welcome to the BMJ podcast. This week, we'll discover the link between the weather and heart attacks. Well, we're not certain how a temperature effect might work. There have been a few small studies in which people have been deliberately exposed to lower temperatures in the laboratory to see how it affects their heart and circulation. Also, how well do authors respond to criticism of their research? When you first see a critical response, sometimes you're really sucked into the position of the respondent. You think, oh my goodness, how can we possibly have published this? The whole study's hole below the waterline, if you, if you like. That's all to come. But now I have David Payne, who's here with his pick of what's online on bmj.com this week. Hi, yes. David. Hello, Duncan. Um, I suppose what I've been drawn to this week is we've got lots of international stories about the various disasters that are happening all over the place. I think it struck us all this week when we've had our daily planning meetings that we've got the situation in Pakistan, we've got the smog in Moscow and, and uh, the terrible situation there and obviously the death of Karen Wu um, in Afghanistan a week ago today. So those are the things that I thought I'd talk about. Sure. So you've got some first-hand experiences from Russia for a start. I've been lucky enough to get a blog on BMJ Blogs from um, Vasily Vlasov, who's a professor of medical science at the Moscow Medical Academy and uh, he's written um, very feelingly actually about the situation there and what he sees are the, the challenges and uh, how the government's dragging its heels a little bit in sort of uh, you know taking the initiative and uh, helping to sort uh, sort things out there so that, that was very interesting we were very fortunate to get that this week so I do advise people to look at that it'd be very interesting mm, Absolutely and you've also got a blog from Pakistan Yeah we're getting regular blogs from Saqib Noor who wrote for a dot to dot which is our clinical community site across BMJ Group from, from Haiti and the situation there and, and, and now Saqib's in, in Pakistan and uh, he's giving us very regular updates actually about the situation there as well so go on to dot.bmj.com if you want to find about more from that um, which is good. Hmm. You also mentioned a story from Afghanistan. Yes, what's happened there was it's had lots of coverage in the UK but I acknowledge that lots of our international readers um, and listeners won't have heard about it probably. Karen Wu who's a British doctor she was part of a contingent I think of nine other volunteers who were working for the International Assistance mission in Afghanistan. They were ambushed by the Taliban, or the Taliban's claimed responsibility for the killing. So what were they doing out there? They were returning at the time from delivering medical supplies to people living in mountain communities as part of the agency's national organisation for ophthalmic rehabilitation. The aid agency involved is pledged to carry on working there, um, MSF, Obviously, I said it's very shocked by the killing, and um, William Hague, the UK Foreign Secretary, described it as a deplorable and cowardly act, and it's against the interests of the people of Afghanistan who have depended on the services that Dr. Wu was bravely helping to provide. So, a very big story here, and obviously, one that we felt we had to cover in the BMJ. Mm, absolutely. David, thanks for joining us. And of course, those blogs and news stories are all available from bmj.com. Now, what's the link between the weather and heart attacks? I have in the studio with me Krishnan Bashkaran, who's a PhD student at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. He and his colleagues have published online some research looking at the effect of short-term temperature changes on the risk of myocardial infarctions in England and Wales. Now, Krishnan, why did you decide to look at this? I mean, there's already a lot of work looking at the link between temperature and mortality. Well, as you say, there's been quite a lot of studies on the effects of temperature on mortality. Uh, Studies often show a kind of U-shaped effect. So there's a higher risk of death at the lower end of the temperature scale, at cold temperatures. And then at middling temperatures, the risk of death reduces and goes up again at the higher end of the temperature scale. And we've looked specifically at the evidence for effects on heart attacks. And it's quite a mixed picture. 
Some studies have found that higher temperatures increase the risk of heart attacks. Others have found cold temperatures increase the risk. But quite a lot of the studies have been fairly small and the methodological quality has been variable. So I think it's still quite unclear what the real effect and association is. Okay, so you decided to take a closer look at this. Where did you get your MI data from? So we use data from an audit database called the Myocardial Ischemia National Audit Project, or MINAP. This is a database that aims to record all hospital admissions for acute coronary events happening in England and Wales. So in that sense, it's very representative. You are looking at, obviously, the effect on temperature, so you must have have found a way of measuring that. What was your data there from? Well, we obtained data from weather monitoring stations, um, giving us the average temperatures in each of the 15 big urban areas that we were looking at. And you just concentrated on urban areas? Yeah, we concentrated on urban areas largely because we wanted to control for certain confounding factors like air pollution, and these things aren't measured very well in the countryside. So you took the data from the heart attack register and from these monitoring stations. What happened when you put them together? What we found was quite interesting. It was quite a small but consistent relationship. So higher temperatures didn't seem to be associated with an increase in the risk of heart attacks. But for every one degree centigrade drop in temperature, there were about 2% more heart attacks in the following days. Now, 2% might not sound like much, but it is an important effect because, of course, the whole population experiences these temperature reductions and heart attacks are quite common to start with. So we estimated that in the UK, that 2% would amount to about 200 extra heart attacks for every one degree C drop in the temperature. Okay, so you said there there was a 2% risk across the whole population but there were groups who were more susceptible to the effect. So we found that, interestingly, although all groups seemed to be affected to some extent, the temperature effect was more pronounced in some subgroups, and particularly in elderly patients and people with prior heart problems. Uh, On the other hand, people who were already taking aspirin to control their heart condition seemed to be less vulnerable to these temperature effects. And are you talking about the, the drop in temperature itself, or is it the lower temperature at, as, a, as a baseline? What we looked at was really the, the, the absolute temperature. So what we're talking about when I say a drop is lower temperatures. In fact, we looked in a sub-analysis at the effect of actual drops, whether you know a bigger drop from day to day is important, and we didn't find much of an effect. Mm-hmm. So is there a plausible mechanism for the link between uh, lower temperatures and an increase in the rate of MIs? Well, we're not certain how a temperature effect might work. There have been a few small studies in which people have been deliberately exposed to lower temperatures in the laboratory to see how it affects their heart and circulation. Um, And these studies give us some idea that at lower temperatures, the blood pressure can go up, the blood can get thicker, more viscous, and the heart has to work harder. And also substances in the blood that help it to clot, like fibrinogen, seem to get a bit more concentrated at lower temperatures. Which would explain the aspirin which would explain potentially how aspirin might be protective. Um, So it might be that that's the mechanism that the blood supply in the heart might be more um, liable to clot at lower temperatures, and that's increasing the risk of heart attacks. But these have been quite small studies, and I think more research is needed to see how an effect like this might work. Yeah. Obviously, this is sort of preliminary research, and you're looking only here at MIs. But do you think there are any implications for for policy, for, for social policy um, towards people who are, 
who are elderly, perhaps, and and more vulnerable to to these changes in temperature. Um, I think implications for patients themselves are, you know, that there there may be some quite common sense and simple measures they can take to try and reduce their temperature associated risk, like just wrapping up warm, staying indoors if there's a severe temperature reduction. On a more broad public health level, although as I say, all groups were affected to some extent. The effect was larger in older people than people with previous heart disease. So one thing we've suggested in the paper is that there might be scope for a kind of targeted warning system uh, aimed at those most at risk linked to weather forecasts. Like the COPD one that the the Met Office runs at the moment. Yeah, that's what we had in mind. Um, This is a a scheme that's been trialled in some GP practices where people with um, respiratory conditions, which can be exacerbated at lower temperatures, um, are given a warning call, telephone call if low temperatures are expected. And it just refers to some, them to some simple advice as to how they can in, uh, reduce their individual risk and gives them an idea of warning signs to look out for that their condition might be getting worse. Um, and for those conditions, the, some of the practices that have, have trialled this scheme have reported some success with reducing hospital admissions. Um, figures of between 15 and 76% reductions have been reported. Presumably that's a, a fairly low-cost way of reducing hospital admissions. It seems like it would be a potentially quite a cost-effective way of uh, mitigating the, the cold-associated risk. So, you know, we've suggested that maybe a similar scheme might be helpful for the vulnerable groups yeah. um, identified by our study to try and reduce the excess risk of heart attacks. Great. Well, thanks for joining us today, Krishnan. Thank you. And, of course, you can read that research online for free on bmj.com. Now... No one particularly likes being criticised, particularly in a piece of work that took a great deal of effort and time to do. But criticism and response to criticism are crucial parts of the scientific process. So how well do authors of research papers respond to it? This is something that a paper published this week on bmj.com looks at. Peter Goetje from the Nordic Cochrane Centre and Tony Delmoth and Fiona Godley from the BMJ have studied response to criticism in the journal. They graded letters to the editor regarding research papers by severity, mild, moderate or major, and then collated the response from authors to each letter, whether they fully, partly or just did not address the criticism. They found that a substantive criticism was raised against 105 of 350 research papers and that authors responded to 47 of those, that's 45%. They also found that severity of the criticism didn't make the response any more likely. To discuss their findings and the implications of the research, I'm joined by Peter Gocha and Tony Delmoth. So Peter, you were the lead author on this. Why did you decide you wanted to look at this in the first place? That was because there was very little research on letters to the editor. And uh, I have always found letters to the editor a very important component of the scientific process and education of all of us because uh, those few peer reviewers, a journal select to look at the manuscript, uh, cannot really uh, be so knowledgeable so that they always find all the major errors with papers. Whereas when it comes out to the whole world, we constantly learn that the the research wasn't as good as we initially thought. So so therefore, letters to the editor are very important. 
And uh, it, it's also very important that that the authors of the research reports uh, reply to them and indeed reply to them in an adequate fashion and don't try to beat about the bush, which we have often experienced that people do when the criticism becomes very serious. So you almost see letters to the editor as an ongoing peer review process. Tony, when you set up rapid responses, and they've been going for a while, was that what you were aiming for? At that time, we were only publishing about 30 or 40% of the letters that were sent to us, and, and those on average seven months after the publication of the letter to which they referred. So a lot of the other letters we were receiving going straight into the waste paper bin, and many of those had very good points to make. And we realized that space not being any sort of an issue online, we could put all the criticisms up there. Were either of you surprised by the results? Not really. Uh, only one of our uh, results surprised us, namely that uh, there was no relation be- between the severity of the criticism and the adequacy of the reply. We we had expected some relation there. Mm-hmm. Tony? I think what I found most surprising was the fact that of the 350 papers that were looked at, about 10 to 15% were rated as having substantial problems. That ends up as being quite an indictment of pre-publication peer review to think that a paper which has been out to at least two specialist referees has been considered by a a manuscript committee in-house which has some outside representation, including statisticians. The idea that at a minimum, one in ten of those papers that's, that's been through that extraordinarily kind of careful process still is published with flaws that could invalidate the study, at least in the opinion of the editor of the journal and one of the deputy editors. And that I thought was surprising and just a little chilling. Mm. Peter, you've had many criticisms of papers published. How do you find the process as a critic? Well, my my personal experience is based on, well, perhaps I have published about 200 critical letters of research. And, um, and I have experienced on many occasions that, that people don't like to face the criticism, uh, particularly not when it's very serious and, for example, amounts to a fatal flaw with their study. I mean, this is understandable that people feel uncomfortable about that. But what I have then experienced is that either they don't respond to my criticism and reply about something else which is more trivial, or they distort what I have said so that what they reply to was not my question. Or, even worse, I have also experienced that people lie bluntly about what I had written and pretend that I wrote something completely different and then they respond to that or even criticize me for what I haven't written. So there are many grades of wrongdoing in this area. And Tony, you deal with authors. Why do you think, in 55% of cases apparently, they're reticent to answer criticism? I can hypothesize um, some from my own behavior. I suppose I fall in the group of the, you know, never apologize, never explain, and you think, I don't care what people say, I'm not going to 
you know, rise to the bait. I'm just going to shut up and it will go away. I, I think a lot of authors adopt that response. I think some, judging by their tone and their content, try desperately hard to to address every response. Sometimes you'll see, I don't know, half a dozen different rapid responses criticizing or querying various aspects of a study. And the author of the paper will send six individualized responses to, you know, respondent A's point followed by respondent B's point. So there's a whole range of potential responses to the ones who just want to sit it out and hope it goes away mm. through to the ones who uh, there's almost nothing they wouldn't do to try and um, yeah. respond. Yeah. I suppose that all begs the question of how much response is warranted. And we're assuming in this discussion that all criticism is valid, but that's not always the case. Sometimes it's unwarranted or, or even malicious. Tony, as an editor, how do you deal with that? When you first see a critical response, sometimes you're really sucked into the position of the respondent. You think, oh my goodness, how can we possibly publish this? The whole study is hull below the waterline, if you, if you like. And then a day or a week later, you get a response back from the author. And in a surprising proportion of times, the original, res- the original criticism doesn't seem so damning. And it's answered, in our eyes at least, perfectly well. You think, well, I was so... I was so taken by the strength um, of that criticism. And yet, now that I've heard, had the, heard the author, I can see that it's, it's not such a profound problem. Having said that, in the study itself, uh, we assessed, by we I mean Fiona Godley and myself, thought that the responses were adequate in a far higher proportion than the critics did. So I guess there's a real question of who makes this call about adequacy. Peter, do you think that this research shows that a more robust approach to criticism is needed by the journal and by authors? Oh, definitely. And this is one of the things that we suggested in our paper, that editors uh, should say to authors when they submit their paper that they will be held accountable for it uh, in the sense that relevant criticisms appearing later really needs to be addressed by the author. That should be part of the contract journals make with authors. And we also suggested that uh, those who then submit critical letters after publication, uh, that these people could be chosen as peer reviewers for the author's replies to the criticism. Uh, this is not being done today with any journal, as far as I'm aware. And of course, it will increase the workload on on journals, but um, I feel it is so important for the advancement of science that it would be a worthwhile investment. So, Tony, that throws down the gauntlet to you. What's the BMJ going to do now to deal with substantive criticism of a paper? We have an automated letter which goes out to people, an automated email that goes out to people as soon as any of any article of theirs is published online. And since the end of this study, we've added a line to say we encourage you to respond to any rapid responses that are asking reasonable questions or making valid criticisms. Mm. We're going to put in our advice to authors that we consider that if substantial criticisms are made of their paper, 
post-publication. They do have an obligation to answer it, which will allow us to, later on to say, we asked this, this author to respond, but he, she didn't. Peter, Tony, thanks for joining us. And of course, that research paper is online for free on bmj.com. That's all for this week. We'll be back next week with more stories from the world of medicine. Join us then. For more information about this programme and other BMJ Group podcasts, please visit bmj.com.